Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Sarah Hopkins, who is an assistant professor at Zayed University. Very nice to speak to you today, Sarah. Thank you. It's great to be here. The paper we're going to be speaking about today is Cultural and Linguistic Struggles and Solidarities of Emirati Learners in the Online Classes During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Now, uh, as I mentioned to Sarah in my uh, introductions and back and forth with her, I was very lucky to go to Zayed University um, a few years ago for, uh, for a conference presentation. But for those of us who don't have a lot of background with people from, uh, from that area of the world, uh, could you give us some of the background to the motivation for your study? And uh, we've also published work from various locations regarding responses to COVID in education. So are there any specific issues uh, in relation to uh, COVID and the Emirates? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so um, basically in the UAE, um, a lot of the higher education um, takes place in the medium of English. So um, English medium instruction is very common in the UAE. And so this um, is one dynamic that might be different from other contexts um, and also have similarities. Um, but also in the UAE, there are other factors um, at play. So whereas um, often the students, uh, there's great diversity within the student population in terms of educational background, linguistic repertoires, um, and also family dynamics, um, there are there's one factor which I think makes the UAE um, a little different perhaps from other contexts is um, the, the effect of religion and culture um, on willingness to use video cameras for online learning. Um, so this especially affects female students um, because traditionally it's not uh, really seen as acceptable to show faces um, on online platforms and this includes uh, social media sites for example professional networking uh, sites such as linkedin students will often choose to uh, show an alternative profile picture mm. so whereas usually we see faces um, female students might choose to show their hands or to show a picture from nature or an mm. animal for example now um you've mentioned uh again in our prior communications that you've spent some time in Japan, you, you've lived in uh, Tokyo before. Could you just give us a, a quick comparison in terms of like um, where the kind of baseline access to technology, such as um, computers, laptops, the ability to tele, uh, telecommute or, or you know, um, tele-study, however we, we want to call it, compared to uh, other places where you have uh, seen this kind of system implemented? Yeah, so I lived in Japan quite a long time ago now, so um, maybe it's a bit hard to make comparisons because at the time when I was living in Japan, it was all face-to-face -face teaching, mm. um, but students were technologically advanced and, you know, used technology a lot. Um, but I think with the COVID pandemic, um, there's a big difference between online learning uh, that students have chosen to take online courses and then emergency remote teaching and learning where mm. they were forced suddenly into a situation where they had to learn content online, uh, but perhaps weren't ready for that. Mm. Um, 
And so in the UAE, um, when I compare it to Japan, uh, one factor that might be different and significant is family dynamics. Um, so in Japan, uh, families tended to be smaller, um, the same as in a similar way to England, families tend to be parents and the children living at home. Mm. Um, and in the UAE, family structures are often quite different. So they could be larger families um, and often with grandparents living in the same house. And so during the pandemic, um, often, although the UAE financially is a wealthy context where students are digitally literate and do have access to devices, um, sometimes um, it wasn't always easy because students had to have their own device for online learning and they might be uh, in a house with uh, sort of 10 or 12 other people all needing to do online learning at the same time. So this did affect access for some students. Now, we're recording this uh, in October of 2022, and uh, God willing, we're, we are uh, coming towards the end of, hopefully, um, the, the, the most difficult part of the pandemic and the way that it's being uh, responded to. There, there may, of course, be new variants. We hope there won't be. Um, but particularly in how in the lessons that we've learned from the last two and a half years, maybe if something comes along in the future, then we're, we're, we're kind of um, better prepared for it. Now, the previous work that we've covered on the podcast kind of came in the middle, where we we didn't really know what the end point was going to be. Uh, in your paper, you quote from Breslin, um, who identified three broad groups of learners during uh, COVID lockdown period, uh, these being lockdown thrivers, lockdown survivors, and lockdown strugglers. And I think these broad categories we can kind of picture in our minds. Um, but from your from your work, um, how much would you say that these were individual specific or how much were they content specific? So was it the personality and the aptitude of the learner that made them fall into one of these categories? Or was it the situation they found themselves in during the lockdown? Yeah, that's a great question as well. I think it's a combination of the two. Um, so um, when I'm doing what when I did my research, I used two very useful theoretical frameworks. Um, one was Goffman's theories, um, looking at everyday interaction, um, relative deprivation and stigma. Um, so he talked about how everyone on in their daily lives has uh, different spaces. So they might have a front stage space and a backstage space. Um, the backstage space would be um, usually the home context. Um, so they would act differently in that space. Um, whereas in the uh, front stage context, that would be when they're going to university or going um, into, pub into public spaces and they would have a different uh, representation of uh, their selves in that space. And what online learning did or emergency remote teaching and learning did was to blur those spaces. And sometimes um, this made students feel uncomfortable, especially if they were using video cameras, uh, then suddenly their backstage space is visible um, to others. Um, so I think this might be something that applies to any context, um, but I think in the UAE, um, it has 
a, a bigger significance um, because of different dynamics around um, taboos, uh, sharing private spaces and sharing faces on cameras. And also the other theoretical framework that I looked at or um, way of analyzing the data was intersectionality. So this um, Crenshaw's uh, theory looks at how different aspects of learner identities intersect and overlap. And sometimes it's not clear cut um, whether right. students are privileged in some ways, disadvantaged in others. And um, these sorts of inequities uh, come out in different ways and different configurations. Um, so whereas you'll have some students um, who will be affected more than others based on individual um, personalities or um, situations, um, I'd say in the UAE, due to cultural aspects, um, some of these factors became uh, more significant. I did wonder, actually, when uh, how the teleconferencing software developed in a very short space of time to include things like background blurring or uh, the ability to replace even replace your own I mean we've all seen the um, embarrassing videos of uh, lawyers not being able to remove cat filters from their faces during depositions and things like that but yes. um, I did wonder whether some of that was in response to trying to make it a globally accessible product and so that you know Sometimes it was background blurring. Sometimes it was the ability to put like your company, you know, logo uh, in the background and therefore make it seem more either professional or uh, culturally appropriate than just having, you know, just the background to uh, your own living room or something like that, which is, as you say, is a very, um, a very private space. Uh, did you did you find that any of these changes, these updates that were made to these uh, you know, teleconferencing software uh, helped your students in any way? Yeah, this is also a great question, um, because this is something that came out of the research or in terms of me making recommendations for the university going forward. And um, so because it all happened so suddenly in spring 2020, um, we basically had our spring break moved forward. Uh, all the teachers had to cancel their plans. I was planning on going to AAAL in Colorado and had to cancel it. And instead, uh, we spent this um, two week period, which was supposed to be the spring break, um, undergoing these intense sessions on uh, how to teach online. Uh, mm. But it wasn't. Um, they weren't classic online courses. It was um, very much emergency remote teaching. So trying to adapt quickly to these new platforms. And I think um, although students were digitally literate and teachers were too, they hadn't had that um, constant experience of using these platforms uh, to teach regular courses. Um, so in the training, and this is something that struck me and why I wanted to investigate the topic further, is that the training mostly involved um, sort of technical aspects around um, how to use the basic features of Zoom, um, mm. but also um, how to use educational apps with the students. Um, but very little was mentioned um, on cultural aspects or context right. specific aspects that might affect our teaching and learning experiences um, so it wasn't mentioned that probably the students wouldn't feel comfortable um, using their video cameras uh, mm. or, or alternatives weren't given um, 
in terms of oh, how can we encourage students to be more interactive in the sessions. Um, so something to come out of this research um, are recommendations um, something that female faculty members who are Muslim at my university uh, did during faculty meetings was uh, to use these interactive movement responsive avatars mm. instead of um, appearing on camera. And this worked very well. So the avatars essentially mimicked the movements of the real person mm. and looked very similar to the real person. So um, I found that to be very effective and engaging. But we haven't had training sessions on how to teach students to use these this software or students haven't had the training sessions on how to use this software. So I think um, going forward as more classes uh, continue to be taught in a hybrid fashion or mm. online uh, this is definitely something that the university should invest in yeah i mean it certainly brings back um not entirely pleasant memories of as you say that kind of two-week period because uh, our semesters run slightly different to to yours and so we basically shut down in the middle of March, but we weren't due back in class until like the second week of April anyway. Uh, we actually put that off until the start of May. And so we were basically put in a situation where we had a shortened semester, but six weeks to get everyone uh, up, to, up to speed. And I'd be interested to know in your context, because the more difficult, um, well, two aspects of it. First of all, because I was on the team that was supposed to get the university and the faculty up and running on this uh, our biggest problem was with the teachers who had never used any learning management systems had never used anything like uh, we started off with skype for business we quickly binned that off because it wasn't uh, uh, didn't work with mac so we moved over to zoom as well um, but had never used any of these online facilities and so trying to get them up to speed would took a lot longer than uh, it did for the students the second thing was our university, not based on, I don't think any, nothing religious or, or cultural, basically based on student security, the decision was made very early on, on that all online lessons would be cameras off mm. by, by policy. They would only turn their cameras on if they wanted to when they were in breakout rooms. Mm -hmm. So essentially, I went for an entire year never meeting students and never seeing their face, hearing their voices you know what marking their work but never seeing them so mm -hmm. just on just on those two points um uh, who was the most difficult group to coach up the teachers or the students and also do you think a, a policy decision early on to just be like cameras off you know protect everyone's security and, and look at it from that angle rather than it being a, a cultural or religious decision yeah, um, so it's really interesting to hear about the Japanese context um, and that there was a policy saying cameras off for security reasons. Um, this is something that came up in the data um, in my study too, that students often um, gave a multitude of reasons for not wanting to use video cameras. It wasn't only cultural factors, right. uh, but it had to do with uh, noise, it had to do with internet connection being slower if they used cameras. And also uh, many people uh, mentioned the issue of security. And some people talked about Zoom bombing, about um, their image being captured on the screen and shared with others. Um, yeah, so um, there are many factors. Um, but the problem, I suppose, um, teachers 
were able, uh, teachers spent the two week session when which was supposed to be a spring break um, training, uh, taking training sessions on how to uh, use Zoom. So mm. I think teachers could use it quite well. Um, it was a bit of a learning curve, though, going through the first semester. Mm. Um, the biggest thing that uh, teachers spoke about on uh, teaching forums during this period was the uh, feeling of loneliness, you know, um, because often when students don't have uh, their video cameras on, teachers do, teachers yeah, yeah have their video cameras on um, and they're just facing these black boxes. Um, yeah. And it can be quite uh, disheartening as a teacher, uh, not being able to see the students and interact properly. And also, I'm not sure how it was in the Japanese context, but in the UAE context, even using microphones was quite rare for students. Mm. So students preferred to use the chat box. Um, and this, I felt, um, based on the data that I collected, um, had something to do with the university being an English medium university and mm. some students not feeling confident uh, speaking, using the microphone and mm. uh, being online, having even their voices online sometimes. Yeah, that's another thing as well, because in terms of security, in terms of privacy, um, it, it's one thing for policy, but also it's a complete change in the methodology the, the the medium of interaction has changed and as language teachers we do you know work a lot with just seeing the eyes of our students and being able to see if anyone is nodding shaking their head looking confused sleeping you know all of these things are, are signals that uh, we either change what we do or we uh, you know keep going with it it seems to be going well and and all of these you know non-verbal signals and cues are things that we kind of missed out on and they missed out on as well in their in their work um i'd like to look specifically at the paper now because you, you've mentioned some uh, parts of it so i think it's uh, about time that we get into the the, the main part of it uh, as i said like the, the your end size is not high um so the number of participants is not particularly high but i think you approached in reading it i, I felt that you approached the data from different uh, angles of analysis that it is a very rich uh, data set from which to as you say get recommendations and, and give those to both your institution and others uh, as well um, how did you select the methods of analysis for your work yes um so the yeah as you say um it's not a big sample size 69 female students were involved in the study and um, the study took place in fall 2020, so the second uh, semester of online learning. Mm. And I um, chose the sample based on the students I had access to at the time. Um, so the university campus is divided into two parts, the female side and the male side. And I taught on the female side. And um, so this, the students are all female um, as part of this study. Uh, but later, I actually expanded the study. So the following semester, I did collect data from male students as well. Mm -hmm. And I have a journal article that's going to be coming out soon, um, looking at male and female students' reflections uh, during the COVID online learning period. Uh, so that might be of interest to, um, I'm hoping it will be coming out next year, early next year. Um, and that increases the sample size to over 100 participants. 
Um, so when I was thinking about methodology, I knew that it was a complex issue and I wanted to choose phenomenology as an approach um, because the COVID-19 pandemic I saw as a major phenomenon um, in this, at this time and how it affected online learning or teaching and learning um, was part of the phenomenon. So I wanted to gain uh, rich and detailed perspectives on this phenomenon. And so um, to do that, I felt it was better not to interview students and ask specific questions uh, where they could be tempted to give one one word answers or short answers, but rather I wanted to see what they would do with the topic um, and how they would describe their lived experiences around the phenomenon of COVID-19. So. Um, to do that, I felt writing reflective essays uh, was an effective method. And especially since I was teaching composition courses at the time mm. where we focused a lot on reflective writing. Um, it also seemed like a useful task for them as well um, to reflect on some of their experiences around this issue. Um, but not only uh, was I interested in their opinions, but I also felt I had a lot to bring to the research myself as someone who's involved in this process. So I made um, detailed notes and observations uh, during my time teaching online in a researcher journal. And although the article doesn't really draw so much on these observations, um, those observations were important for me to understand the whole process and, and how often students uh, used various means of communication during that period. Yeah, I, we've talked with people before about it, and you, you're, you're drawing on areas of kind of um, grounded theory in this, because uh, the idea is you, you don't enter into the inter, in with, with a hypothesis, you are observing, you are trying to analyze as the process is going on. And so, um, you know, journaling, as it were, as you as you observe the actions going on and things that you you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, even small things, it's a really important way of after the data has been collected, you can go back and see, okay, this is what they were thinking at the time. And this is what I was thinking at the time. And yet this kind of like parallel discourse of the research process. And so you, you end up with a, um, a, a very uh, interesting outcome. Uh, I just, I'm just interested in your use of um, intersectionality as a, as a framing for your analysis, given that you're only speaking to a small cohort of only female uh, Muslim students in uh, studying in the UAE, what were any of the other intersecting factors that you thought might assist your analysis of the data? Yes, um, that's a great question. Uh, so I think there's often a tendency um, to frame Emirati female learners as this sort of homogenous block, um, especially the way they all dress in a very similar way with right. the black shayla and the abaya. And um, Arabic is generally their first language. And um, there tends to be this perception that there isn't diversity within this group, um, but actually there is quite a bit of diversity within uh, Emirati female learners. Uh, one intersecting um, aspect or some factors that um, work together 
to intersect to influence uh, learning experiences include educational background. Yeah. So in the UAE, um, there are many different types of schools. Um, most of the students um, who were part of my study attended government schools mm. where they learned through the medium of Arabic, um, except from some subjects uh, which are English medium. Um, and then other students uh, would be had attended private schools or international schools where they learned through the medium of English. And so right. this um, educational background really affects their experiences once they get to university because all the courses are taught through the medium of English. And so you do see differences or uh, factors that influence learning experiences in terms of their um, linguistic abilities or language backgrounds. Um, there's also, I think, a, a big uh, factor is gender. Um, so I looked at this quite closely in my study and it came out in the data where students, female students, talked about um, cultural taboos around uh, females showing their faces on cameras, uh, whereas this didn't seem to be um, an issue for male students. Right. Um, but actually, once I had gained data from male students, they also weren't in favour of using video cameras. And this was because they felt that female members of their family could be in the background. Um, so for them, or for that situation, one of my recommendations was using Zoom backgrounds because yeah. then they could use their uh, cameras, but just blur the backgrounds, as you mentioned earlier. Um, but as well on the topic of gender as well, um, in the UAE and in many other contexts globally, there are gender expectations in the home, especially uh, for women to help mm. out domestic chores. And um, studies have also been done in the UAE looking at uh, female academics. And I know you've talked about this on the uh, on various previous episodes um, where female academics also feel responsible for doing online learning with their children as yes. well as teaching yes. um, and this tends to fall usually on females more than males um, and this was the case uh, in my study a lot of students mentioned uh, gendered expectations hmm. uh, yeah and, and again uh, I haven't done any in-depth analysis on this but from my own um, you know, two and a half years of, of working in uh, online, only online or hybrid courses. Uh, again, as you know, Japan might look from the outside to be a fairly uh, homogenous, you know, monoculture. I think it does come down to two factors that you mentioned. I think it does come down to educational, prior educational opportunities. And even though it doesn't come up a lot in Japan, class. So there are, you know, people who just do not have access to uh, stable, you know, um, internet and, and you know their um, laptop at home in a in a place that's quiet and conducive to learning when you have you know many generations uh, living in the same house or you have people you know coming in and out all the time um, or if you are just left to you know look after yourself so these are the things that our university had to you know go through with um, you know laptop loan uh, agreements and trying to ship things to students who, who couldn't afford them or didn't have uh, ready access, who, who could afford them, but um, it wasn't an investment that they, you know, were felt comfortable making at the time. So all of these things um, do uh, obviously come up. What would you say were the 
the main findings of your study? Because you mentioned already some of the recommendations that you've made in terms of like backgrounds and um, making policies that recognize the specific needs and concerns of female students. So what were some of the major findings and uh, what recommendations you know, have you made to your university and could be implemented at other universities? Basically, at the beginning of the article, um, I talk about the uh, binary categories of Global South and Global North. Um, so often, you know, um, there's the temptation to place countries into these two categories. Uh, but something that my study revealed is that um, you know, we can't really do this, although um, often the UAE is placed into the Global South category. Uh, there are many Global Norths within the global south oh, yeah. in, in a way so you'll see um various learning exp uh, experiences within any given context um so my study revealed um different challenges um that students faced um according to many different factors intersecting factors um i suppose i identified um some categories of challenges that students faced uh, one was linguistic challenges um to do with english as the medium of instruction and often in the uae students are first generation uh university goers so they um their parents um, hadn't been to university um often because the country is quite young um and so universities are quite new and um the knowledge-based economy is is also quite new in the country um so they might not have had the linguistic or cultural or academic support at home um so this impacted their experience they, they missed the support of teachers face to face um also cultural challenges um, so this related to mainly discomfort around using uh, video cameras and this um, seemed to be a gendered uh, aspect but then again when i looked at male students it also affected male students learning experiences too um and then other barriers uh, which don't relate to culture or linguistics included financial constraints, um, large families or lack of space, unsuitable home environments um, to do with internet connection or noise levels, and also context specific challenges, especially for teachers who felt that um, they were very isolated or teaching was quite difficult during this time because they felt they were teaching to a blank space or teaching in a void uh, but hearing your experience of japan perhaps that uh, mm. is not only doesn't only affect the uae but uh, other contexts too yeah i would agree uh, I, I think it's the i knew it was going to be an issue for me as a language teacher um and it would be for many of my colleagues of who are language teachers to be cameras off um, when that policy was decided i knew that was going to be a thing because um for all the other things that i do at the university and for the most part i'm a language researcher i'm a language teacher second and then uh, i have all the administrative work the language teaching role being in the classroom being with students working with them um is the thing that i enjoy the most mm -hmm. and i knew as soon as that was taken as soon as that was cut off for the whole year i knew that i was going to be losing something that meant the most to me personally interpersonally mm -hmm. so um i'm interested to know 
from the teacher's point of view, uh, how they felt, I mean, you said it was like speaking to blank spaces, but if, from your, just maybe if it's not in the study, but from your own observations, uh, did it depend on the subject that was being taught? So more typically teacher-fronted subjects, did the teachers care so much about seeing their students? Um, in the humanities and in languages, did they care more? This is a really interesting question, actually, and it makes me want to do further research on this um, because I didn't in my study interview teachers, um, although I had lots of informal chats with teachers and I was part of different forums online where we all shared our feelings. Yeah. Um, but it would be very interesting to formally um, interview teachers on their experiences and interview teachers across disciplines and find out whether that affected their experiences. Um, I know for for language courses or for composition courses, um, it seemed to matter a lot uh, to want to connect with students and uh, also support students uh, more fully. Um, so I think a lot of teachers found themselves asking the questions, is everything clear or uh, is, is everyone following? And then often you just get a stream of yes, clear, yes, clear in the mm. chat box. Mm. And it just isn't um, satisfying or convincing um yeah so um also teachers mentioned issues around um not feeling that uh perhaps academic integrity was being um lost because uh, although for tests and assessments um students did use cameras for those because we had to um test that they were actually taking the tests you know, for everyday lessons, you, you didn't really know whether the students were really the students in a way. So um, that was something that came up in the data too. Um, although students were reflecting on their own experiences, a lot of them talked about the compassion they had for their teachers. And they pointed out that they realized it was difficult for teachers not to be able to see uh, students. Do you think from both sides, just hearing what you said there, from both sides for teachers towards the students concerns and students towards their understanding of the teachers troubles um do you think there's been an increase in empathy between the community that you have on campus yes i think so um this also came up in the data this need for compassion um and students also talked about the need for um, choice and agency mm. so um, not forcing something on students when it was already difficult enough going through these difficult times and I think um, another recommendation of mine is to try and when teachers are being trained or uh, for teacher training it's important to consider context specific dynamics um, mm. and to be compassionate for uh, various situations that teachers might not be aware of if they're not stepping into their students homes um, so I think more teacher education on these context specific dynamics is important and that, that comes with compassion yeah I would agree uh, I, I think there's a, there's a there's a large area for uh, growth in teacher training when it comes to viewing both sides of the dynamic as as human beings uh, I'm actually for the first time this semester doing actual teacher training trying to put together a curriculum that involves you know covering things from the ground up and also from the top down but trying to instill because I'm, I'm actually teaching teaching assistants so I think there's a, a new line to the old joke there 
somewhere. These are people who are, you know, highly academically competent, but they've only ever viewed the classroom dynamic from one side. And they're being asked to take over maybe 10 to 15% of the classroom content, but be responsible for the students in the classroom at the same time. And so I have included discussion activities and thoughts about empathetic aspects uh, mm -hmm. to make sure that when you walk in the room, um, I think I can't remember the interview that we had, um, but talking about the, the fact that when an activity doesn't necessarily work in the class, it might not be your fault, but it's not the student's fault either. Mm -hmm. You know, it's some combination down the line and you have to, as the teacher, it's your job to, to kind of, you know, pick it apart and fix it. So going forward, uh, is your university um, kind of wanting to include more hybrid classes, more options for students not to be on campus? Has, has this been uh, an outcome of the COVID uh, situation? Yes, um, definitely. Um, so we actually were online for a very long time, perhaps more than other contexts. Um, so we didn't go back to face-to-face -to -face teaching until fall 2021. Mm. Uh, and even then, um, when I was teaching in fall 2021, some of my classes were face-to-face -face and some mm. were online still. Mm. And this is partly because we have two campuses, one in Abu Dhabi and one in Dubai. So sometimes teachers um, were now assigned classes from an, another campus uh, whereas that didn't used to happen generally before covid uh, now it's happening more and more where teachers from abu dhabi are teaching dubai classes online mm. and vice versa um and some as well at the beginning um we had an issue with classroom sizes uh, so because of social distancing mm. uh, rules um so we could only fit 15 students in a classroom whereas nice. there you know, 24 or 25. Uh, so we'd have to do alter, uh, alternative weeks. So one set, what half the group would be face to face one week and then online the next week. Yeah. Um, and even this semester, I have online classes as well as face to face classes. So it, it seems to be a direction um, which it's stuck um, mm. in uh, my university. Um, so that's why I think uh, all the research that I did during the COVID um, pandemic is still relevant now, actually, yes. because um, it tends to be we're having more and more online classes. And I think these issues are still present, so um, still important. My university, um, and, I, and again, anecdotal from other universities as well, but my university, I work in the, uh, on the Master's Business and Administration course. And those always used to be classes of somewhere between 40 and 45 students. But now we run it as a multi-level hybrid course. So there are in-person uh, attendees. There are people who are live attendees, but online. And people who have to, because of time delays and, and, you know, in, in different countries and things like that, they have to be able to watch the video of the class and complete the same course activities as everyone else trying to learn aspects of business in English. And it is easily the most stressful class to prepare and, you know, produce and administrate. But the university loves it because we were kind of stuck in the 40 to 45 range. And now they can have up to 60, 65 students accepted onto the course, which is, you know, because um, we're not constrained by the, the size of the class. 
and the yeah. students don't actually need to be in the same time zone anymore so they love it right <laughs> yeah i mean this is another dynamic isn't it being flexible uh, to different learning needs i think is really important because not everyone likes to learn in the same way and there might be preferences there might be some students who enjoyed online learning um, mm. during the covid period and, and want to continue with that um so yeah that that must be quite sort of chaotic almost what you describe all those different dynamics within mm. one course um and also i suppose um in terms of grading papers you probably have a lot a lot more to do is that not true if you... yeah it, it, well it, it's trying to be consistent it's trying to make sure that the person that turns up uh, and it's at night as well so it starts at 8 p.m goes on till close to 10 um oh. and so you know trying to make it consistent between you know proving that everyone did the activities that everyone else did uh, even if they looked at the video three or four days later mm. and then with assessments in the same way so um yeah I, I, it's been a challenge but it's also one that as you say being adaptable if you're if you have the basic skill to begin with i think you're able to think of um different ways to make it work for both you and your students. I mm -hmm. think the most difficult thing is trying to coach teachers and students up to you know, have that kind of flexibility to make sure that uh, they're able to take advantage of it from both sides. So you mentioned before, maybe taking a look at um, you know, other aspects of online learning. Um, do you have uh, anything, uh, you say you've got a paper on your male students coming out, uh, next year but uh, also is there anything else in the works anything that you're going to build off the back of this yeah so um actually covid was a very um the covid pandemic era or time was a very um, productive one for me in terms of research and research interests so i also got into um linguistic landscaping um and looking at the languages and semiotics on signs um in the uae so looking mm. at how health warnings were communicated. Um, so I did several studies uh, looking at signage in Abu Dhabi public places. Um, and in term, because the UAE is very, is linguistically diverse, uh, almost uh, around 88% of the population um, are not uh, citizens. So and they come from many different countries. Um, so this was interesting to me, the representation of languages uh, on signs um, and what that said about inclusivity and belonging. Um, but um, to take that further, what I'm doing at the moment um, is a schoolscape study. Um, so I'm looking at um, signage in the university campus um, in terms of languages represented and spaces of belonging. Mm. Uh, within the campus and um, so it it does relate um they're all related in a way because i'm looking at um the context specific experience or the learning experience and also identities within mm. this context for people who are playing lost in citations bingo at home if you thought we were going to get through an entire episode without chris talking about english as a lingua franca uh, dr hopkins is also interested in uh, world Englishes and global Englishes and uh, uh, other aspects, which is kind of how I, I got into contact with you through um, a recommendation of a paper through academia.edu. Uh, is there anything you're currently looking at uh, in that area um, of world Englishes, global Englishes, uh, Emirati Englishes and uh, identities as well? 
Yeah. So this was the topic of my PhD thesis. So looking at um, the impact of global English or global Englishes on cultural identities uh, within the UAE context. Um, and so um, I've taken my research further in recent times to look um, more generally at Englishes in the UAE context. Um, mm. So I have this um, encyclopedia um, article coming out in the world, the Encyclopedia for World Englishes, mm. um, which hopefully will be coming out um, quite soon, maybe uh, next year, early next year, where I give an overview of um, Englishes in the UAE um, and look at some of the features, but also uh, look at attitudes towards um, English in this context. Yeah, I think How it's about, mm, sorry, I think it's about time I update my copy of that. I've got the Encyclopedia of World Englishes, but I think it's probably from about um, 2009 when I was doing my PhD. So right. I think I think I, I should. I'll, I'll wait until your version is published, and then uh, maybe we can we can talk about that. Who's who's the who are the lead editors on it this time? It's um, Kingsley Bolton. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and uh, and then each um, each volume because there are different regions so mine is part of the MENA region um, mm. so uh, Tarek um, Elias is editing that volume um, mm. but there are others other editors of each volume and then the overall editor I think is Kingsley Bolton. I'd like to thank you very much for your uh, time today uh, Dr Hopkins and also wish you the best of luck uh, with your future research I'd, I'd obviously we have other shared interests that I'd like to speak to you about in the future. Uh, the paper that we have been speaking about today is Cultural and Linguistic Struggles and Solidarities of Emirati Learners in Online Classes During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Uh, we've been speaking to Dr. Sarah Hopkins, an assistant professor from Zayed University in the UAE. And again, I'd like to thank you very much for your time and uh, hope to speak to you again in the future. Thank you very much. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.